something prized in filmmaking circles is something called the elevator pitch, at least in the marketing wing. In short, the elevator pitch is the idea that the concept of a film can be boiled down to like two or three sentences while still retaining the essence of what makes it marketable. One of the ultimate examples uh, that's cited for this is Die Hard. You know, it's uh, about a New York cop who goes out of his element to Los Angeles to attend a Christmas party at this Japanese business that his wife is working at, and uh, he's trying to patch up his crappy marriage. The building gets taken over by terrorists, and he has to fight them off without even his shoes on. Bam, that's the movie. <laughs> And while, yeah, Die Hard does work in the elevator pitch scenario, I think another very good example is Run Lola Run, which is kind of an inverted Rashomon. In this uh, episode, we'll be talking about the film in greater detail, both going into uh, its construction and the philosophical underpinnings behind its plot points. My name is Ryan, Surreal Deep Dive. And it's me, Rachel, back again as perpetual co-host, because we are still recording this in quarantine <laughs> yeah and while i didn't plan for this to be like one of those i'm going to watch the classic movie with somebody who's never seen it before you have never seen run lola run you have just finished watching it yeah, for the first time and i'm kind of surprised that i haven't watched it before because it is extremely mushy oh yeah yeah this is right up your alley yeah, the left hand no. corner of your alley yeah i i loved it i mean i'm a huge fan of you know the I guess not quite Rashomon, but the Sisyphean doing something over and over again, you know, time loop stories I'm a big fan of. The elevator pitch for Run Lola Run is that this film is split into three different sequences where an incremental shift in what happens in the beginning creates a radically different result that just falls like dominoes towards the end. In fact, there is a literal domino demonstration in the film, in, yeah. in case you're not picking up on the metaphor. <laughs> Yeah, right at the start. Uh, the film centers on Lola, you know, the titular character. The film begins with her receiving a frantic phone call from her boyfriend, Manny, who is a small-time bagman for the mob. Uh, Manny was supposed to deliver 100,000 Deutschmarks to a drop-off location, but he panicked at the sight of the ticket inspectors on the subway and forgot to take the money bag with him when he abruptly got off the train. He noticed a hobo examining the bag as the train pulled away. He angrily called Lola because she was supposed to meet him there, but her moped got stolen the night before, so she couldn't get there. Uh, Manny is convinced that his boss will kill him when he shows up empty-handed at his appointment in 20 minutes, so he intends to rob a nearby supermarket. Lola begs Manny to wait for her. The, uh, Lola then races to her father, a bank manager, for help. Uh, she interrupts her father as he's discussing uh, a pregnancy with his mistress. Angered by Lola's uh, entreaty, he uh, informs Lola that he's leaving his wife and her and that she isn't his biological daughter. Just shoes her right out of the bank. Lola then sprints to intercept Manny, but he's already in the supermarket when she gets there. Uh, she helps him rob the store, but she's killed once the police arrive. This resets another scenario where Lola is running down the stairs, but she's tripped by the boy, so she falls down the stairs this time. And so she arrives at the bank a little later than before. Uh, this allows her to overhear the conversation between her father and the mistress uh, because uh, the mistress had just informed the father that the baby isn't his and they're in a screaming match and Lola picks up enough context to freak out about it. Mm -hmm. uh, this results in Lola grabbing a uh, firearm from the security guard and taking her father hostage. She steals 100,000 marks and manages to escape when the police who have surrounded the building mistake her for an innocent bystander. She doesn't look like a bank robber. Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> she gets the Manny before he enters the supermarket this time, but he's run over and killed by a speeding ambulance. And then it resets one more time. <laughs> yeah, at this point, Lola 
agilely leaps over the dog and gives him a growl in return. Mm -hmm. And she also doesn't inadvertently cause a car accident from uh, one of her father's colleagues. That means that this colleague arrives at the bank and gets Lola's father away before she can talk to him altogether. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not having any other options, Lola enters a casino and gets a hundred mark chip and very improbably wins 129,600 marks uh, by hitting a roulette number uh, twice in a row. The second time, she just does it by force of will by screaming at it. By the way, Lola can shatter glass by screaming. This is not commented upon as being unusual by anybody in, in the film. No, honestly... It works. <laughs> it fits right in. Meanwhile, Lola doesn't bump into a, a kid on a bike as the same way she did in the previous two scenarios, so he ends up selling the bike to a hobo. The hobo is then spotted by Manny, who chases him down and retrieves the bag. However, he uh, Manny, being a good sport, gives the hobo his gun in exchange. Yeah, I was like, Manny, don't be stupid. <laughs> Manny, Manny is just a stupid guy. Yeah, he is. The whole time I was watching this, I was like, Lola, girl, it's like, I know you love your boyfriend, but you could do so much better. <laughs> Lola gets aboard the ambulance this time and uh, helps save the life of the guy in there. I think he's supposed to be the security guard. He is. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's something we'll be talking about a little later on. Lola meets Manny just as he's giving the money to his boss, and as they're walking home together, and he's commenting upon how, you know, she looks so flustered and sweaty, nice. he, <laughs> he casually asks her what's in the bag. Yeah, hopefully, I don't know, we'll see. I can't. I don't know. I mean, I, I, there, like all the little moments of like the relationship in between, you know, maybe I can see Lola staying, but also maybe not. <laughs> I could see her being like, fuck off, Manny. I mean, I tell Manny to fuck off, especially <laughs> after that tense conversation at the beginning of the day. She shows up freaked out and he's like, what's up, baby? Everything's fine. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay, the basic concept of this film came to Tom Tickvert while he was just walking down the street and he saw this uh, woman jogging and she had this bright red hair and that gave him the visual impetus for the film. It's also loosely spun off of an early short film he directed called Because. That showcased an argument between a married couple, three different ways and three radically different results. So he basically expanded the concept of uh, that short film with the idea of this woman with loud red hair just running around. The star of the film is played by Franca Potenta. She first appeared in After Five in The Forest Primeval. Uh, this is her second feature. Tickford was impressed by her performance there, and he hired her after a brief chat with her in a cafe. Potenta did have to suffer a bit for her art. She wore a red rinse for the uh, film shoot and could not wash her hair for seven weeks, and it is obvious that uh, that is yeah, the case. Yeah, I mean, I kind of was like, does she have dreadlocks? No, her hair is just really unwashed. It's yeah. very matted. <laughs> Granted, she's sprinting for the entirety of the film, so it's it, it does lend a degree of authenticity to it, although it probably wasn't pleasant to deal with. Oh my god, it probably itched like a motherfucker. Potenta commented upon that, and also her character was wearing Doc Martens, so she has to run for seven weeks in Doc Martens. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not fun to run in Doc Martens. The film was shot in Berlin over the course of the seven weeks. Uh, the opening it was shot in an airport hangar with about 300 extras, and it was carefully filmed to make it look like it was a lot more. A lot of the minor supporting characters are highlighted in there as the narrator goes on about stuff we'll be discussing in further detail. Oh, yeah. 
You zoom out and then all the people form the title of the film. Each individual letter was shot once and then everything was combined together in post because of the limited number of people. Mm -hmm. The sequences where Manny and Lola are uh, screaming at each other on the phone took two whole days of shooting. Mm -hmm. Uh, The phones themselves didn't work. They were just props. So the actors and the crew members communicated via walkie-talkie while they were shooting both (laughs) scenes at the same time. Oh, nice. Yeah, most of the film was shot on 35mm, although other segments were done on handheld digital video, which means that the quality loops and dips quite obviously. Uh, The the scenes where uh, Lola's father and his mistress are talking about her pregnancy with uh with that really shaky cam and all like grainy footage there it's it a, it's like a, a soap opera yeah it's a it's an interesting contrast Flashback scenes were shot in black and white, and there were certain animated sequences. Uh, oh, partic- I love the animated sequences. They're so fun. Particularly when uh, Lola's running down the stairs at the beginning of each segment. Those parts were animated because the crew was afraid that uh, Patenta would uh, injure herself running down the stairs over and over again. Yeah, you know what? I, I probably would have fallen down the stairs, too. <laughs> Particularly in the second bit where she gets tripped and falls down the stairs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a cartoon character had to suffer for that, not the actress. Yeah, the film to get put together very hurriedly. Uh, there are 1,500 edits, which is a lot for something that is 80 minutes long, and oh, lots of yeah. rapid cutting. No, so many rapid cuts, you know, lots of orbital shots. But I really like the camera work. It is contrasted with long takes. There are a lot of long whining pans in the film, too, to build up tension. And also constant shots of clocks in order to add a sense of urgency. There are also uh, numerous instances of split screens. Uh, This was done to mimic uh, 1970s conspiracy thrillers. It lends some of that paranoid Robert Redford atmosphere to it. (laughs) Tickford also cited Brian De Palma's 1980 film Dress to Kill as an influence. It's one of the films where uh, De Palma is basically trying to do Hitchcock, not as obviously as Sisters. That being said, that dovetails into, like a lot of people, Tickford is a big fan of Vertigo. There's, <laughs> yeah, there are spirals throughout the film. The staircases, the cartoon Lola's running down, uh, the pillows and such have spirals as well. And for the scene in the casino, Tickford wanted a, a portrait of uh, Kim Novak, like the one in, in Vertigo, but the art director couldn't find any reference on short notice. <laughs> so he quickly dashed off a portrait of uh, the back of a woman's head, and it took him about 15 minutes. It looks good for 15 minutes. And he put a spiral in the bun of the back of the woman's head I because, of course. That. Yeah, I mean, and even the store that Manny is out next to has a spiral sign. Tickford loved the portrait. It is hanging in his house oh, to the, to the nice. present day. I love stories like that. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, the crew had a hard time finding a grocery store that would allow them to shoot the robbery scene inside. Oh yeah, it'd be fun. The one that they finally found that was willing to go along with it was located at the crossroads, which is symbolically very fitting considering the film with the time loop and the weird decisions and all that. The bedroom scenes that uh, Rachel commented on, uh, in between each sequence, there's a part where like Manny and Lola are lying together, presumably in a post-coital pillow talk session, bathed in red light, and they're just talking about their relationship. Yeah, that was thrown together at the last minute just to give some contrast. The constant running scenes give you a quiet breath before the next sequence starts. Yeah, plus it kind of provides some context, because if not, it's just like Manny is the boyfriend, he is the prop. In the, in the first little, like, bedroom vignette, like, Lola's being super needy and asking him, like, leading questions about the relationship. But in the second one, Manny gets to be the whiner because he's asking Lola what she'd do if he died. And what she just did. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> 
The uh, roulette scene was shot over and over again until the ball landed on a 20. There was no rigging or anything like that. Surprisingly, it only took three or four takes. Good, and I wonder, you know, potentially, he's like, the whole time, like, he's gotta land, gotta land. <laughs> Conversely, it took ten takes to shoot the scene where the ambulance almost collides with a pane of glass, and then that one scene where it finally does. The crew only had two panes of glass, so everybody was very careful. On the scene where the ambulance goes through the glass, they detonated the glass with a charge just before the ambulance hit it, so, you know, the ambulance would push the glass and it looked more cinematic. It does look very cool. They nailed it on the first take, so they had this backup pane of glass just sitting around, and Tickford just decided to, like, blow it up in a ceremonial thing on the last date of shooting. <laughs> that sounds fun. The film has a wide variety of running shots because most of the film is running and that would get monotonous after a while. So there's lots of angles, lots of overhead, lots of wide pans, lots of cutting between and forth. Just constantly changing it up so you won't get bored with it. Yeah, honestly, just watching it, I was getting a stitch in my side and blisters on my feet just from watching Lola run, especially that she's wearing docks. The cameraman didn't have a much better stake of it because he had to hold a heavy steady cam and run with Potenka, oh. sometimes backwards. Poor man. Unsurprisingly, uh, it is geographically impossible for you to run around Berlin in Alola's route and uh, get there in 20 minutes, which, I, once again, I wasn't shocked to hear that, but I don't know anything about Berlin's layout. I was able to buy it. Uh, yeah, I mean, me too. I, I say as someone who spent a few days running around, well, not running around Berlin, but walking around, it's surprisingly large and flat. Yeah, and considering it's such an old city, that's... Well, I mean, it is an old city, but only two buildings, or two to three buildings, predate World War II. Oh, right. Yeah, I know. The Berliner Dome and the church, and I think one more that I forget, because I went to two of them. Okay, anyway. <laughs> right, yeah, aside from the time loop gimmick, the one thing that people remember the most about Run Lola Run would be the soundtrack. Oh, which I is loved it. which is very throbbing late '90s Euro techno. A lot of house music, a lot of Oons beats. <laughs> yeah, uh, apparently the the movie was initially conceived to feature lots of first person voiceover from uh, Lola's perspective, and there's still some of that. But uh, when Tickford was in the editing stage, he started adding techno beats to the narration. He decided that he liked the music better and on its own. Yeah, I gotta say that if there was just too much narration, it'd be kind of overkill. I mean, you know, that scene in Adaptation where the uh, writer's talking about yeah, how... Uh, adaptation. <laughs> well, there's a scene in Adaptation where um, there's like this professional screenwriting teacher, and he goes on this big, long rant about how voiceover is bullshit, and if you're doing it in a movie, you're cheating. Unless your name is Martin Scorsese, apparently. Well, I mean, there's the entire opening sequence of The Departed, the one that's coming to mind. <laughs> Anyways, the music was composed by uh, Tickver with Johnny Klimek and uh, Reinhold Heil. It was meant to underline rhythm, repetition, and interval, and show the dichotomy between cyclical and linear things, and time and space, which I think it does quite swimmingly. Just oh, yes. EDM is nothing but very carefully paced and very easy to dance to, so the rhythm is just, yeah, you, you, you can tap your toe to it even if you can't dance at all. However, the music also quotes the unanswered question, a chamber piece composed by Charles Ives. Uh, the chords in the original work were meant to evoke the silences of the druids who know, see, and hear nothing. So when you mention music and druids, I just think of Stonehenge from Stonehenge. <laughs> yeah, this is... What they were doing. 
Potenta was brought in to um, punch up the narration um, at different voiceover, you know, now that they knew that they were going to go in a more techno direction. And she also added some uh, singing and vocals to a track called Believe. That one was released as a single, and uh, it went gold in Germany and won an MTV Video Music Award. Yay! <laughs> If you have encountered any analytical pieces about Run, Lola, Run, you know that just about everybody wants to talk about how this film positions a debate between the philosophical concepts of free will versus determinism. This is onset in the very beginning when the narrator asks us a bunch of very probing questions about how much agency human beings actually have in a chaotic universe. Now, to break things down, free will is usually described as the ability to choose among multiple options. This dovetails into libertarian free will, the idea that we make our own choices through our individual agency of personal liberty, and this feels true to us because it is true to us. We are capable of seeing the world from an objective standpoint, weighing the options and making decisions informed by them. Now, this contrasts against determinism, which is the idea that all actions are determined by previous actions. And while humans are more complicated than, say, a toaster, we are still made up of parts and we are still subject to the rules of the universe and the laws of physics. And we react to external stimuli just like a toaster does. We're just more complex than that. This is somewhat distinct from predeterminism, which is the idea that all actions are created and known by some outside force that created the universe. This is usually attributed to God, or there's sometimes karma, depending on how flexible you are. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a combination, run the room kind of fits a combination of both. That is the conclusion a lot of people come to. There are instances of divine intervention in the, in the film. You could say that, I mean, Lowell literally prays for someone to give her an idea before she gets to the casino in the and, third and sequence. And she gets the, the 20s. Yeah she, she, <laughs> yeah, she gets two natural 20s. Yeah. That being said, she doesn't need to because in this timeline, Manny gets the money back. Yeah, so that is, well, most of it. I mean, I think that almost got bought, at, you know, a couple, you know, bratwursts in a nice suit. Oh. Yeah, to give an idea of determinism, one quote I stumbled across in um, a video essay about this movie was from the polymath Pierre-Simon Laplace, and he said, We may regard the present state of the universe as the effect of its past and the cause of its future. An intellect, which at a certain moment would know all forces that set nature in motion, and all positions of all items of which nature is composed. If this intellect were also vast enough to submit these data to an analysis, it would embrace in a single formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the tiniest atom. Now that is a very, very dry way of saying that humans are not smart enough to understand the totality of the universe, but if we were capable of it, and we saw all moments simultaneously, like, say, Dr. Manhattan or something. And I just had yeah. thought of Dr. Manhattan, too. <laughs> yeah, we would realize that everything is just a result of causality, cause and effect, one thing leading to another, and there is no free will or choice. That is just an illusion we present to ourselves because of our ego, and an object at rest tends to stay at rest until an outside force acts upon it. Uh, every action causes an equal and opposite reaction, and we are no different. We just can't see the mechanisms in our own mind as we're reacting to the stimuli around us and making a decision based on it. Mm -hmm. The film does sort of play into that. There's a lot of chaos theory and butterfly effect, particularly oh, yeah. 
Yeah, particularly with the, the three people that Lola bumps into in slightly different ways throughout the vignettes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you see her, like, running into, like, this woman pushing a baby carriage, and then the, the guy on the bike, and then somebody who's working at the bank, and mm-hmm. the very, very slight difference in her interaction with each one results in a series of quickly edited snapshots of what happens to them afterwards. They're all vastly different. Yeah, and vastly different than the life or death sort of thing. And, you know, if we are humans with internal agency and free will and the classical libertarian definition of it, then how can such radically different things happen to these people just because, like, Lola accidentally elbowed them this one time? Mm-hmm. As Rachel implied before, a lot of people argue that the film settles upon a uh, concept known as compatibilism. Uh, This is the idea that free will and determinism are mutually compatible and that it is possible to believe in both without being logically inconsistent. Yeah, that makes sense to me. (laughs) Yeah, freedom can be present or absent for reasons other than metaphysics. Also, determinism does not exclude the truth of possible uh, future outcomes. Uh, Recognition of determinism, but the assumption of responsibility, which is basically what this lines up with. Because, you know, if you, say, rob a supermarket the way that Lola and Manny do, and you come out and the police are surrounded you, in court, you're not going to be able to get away with arguing that external stimuli put you in this position where you had to react in the way that resulted in you breaking the law. The police do not care that outside moral forces uh, compel Lola and Manny to rob the grocery store. You know, the idea of determinism is interesting as a philosophical concept, but our society would unravel completely if we did not hold people responsible for their actions. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, philosophy can be fun and messy. <laughs> when I researched compatibilism, the very same video essay presented me with a quote by uh, the writer G.K. Chesterton, who wrote, According to most philosophers, God in making the world enslaved it. According to Christianity, in making it, he set it free. God had written not so much a poem, but rather a play. A play he had planned as perfect, but which had necessarily been left to human actors and stage managers who have since made a great mess of it. Yeah, that sounds... Yep. (laughs) I mean, I do like the idea of compatibilism. I think it's kind of a have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too scenario where, you know, you're allowed to recognize that we are all heading towards entropic heat death regardless of what we do. But at the same time, we get to placate our egos and say that we still matter at least a little bit. (laughs) Well, I don't think I'm quite as dark in that line of thought as as you. It's like, sure, Lola changes things, but a lot of it comes down to like her own decision. She decided to go and, you know, try to save Manny. I am sort of inclined to go against anything that makes me feel good. Yeah, and, I, and, I'm not, <laughs> and I'm not alone. Kant approached compatibilism as uh, masturbatory word juggling, which is harsh, but not exactly unfair. William James referred to compatibilism as soft determinism, which is also harsh, but not unfair. In the film itself, there is... Definitely an argument for compatibilism. For example, when Manny comes out of the phone booth, he interacts with a blind lady who is played, incidentally enough, by uh, the actor's real-life mother. Aw, that's so sweet. Was she blind in real life? I don't think so, but I don't know for sure. Anyways, in the third vignette, she points him out to the hobo on the bicycle, which (laughs) some people have seen as a sign that she is aware of the universe in ways that the other characters aren't, and she can sort of nudge people along. And while that exterior stimuli is acting upon Manny, he still makes the decision seemingly of his own volition. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people have compared the blind woman to the uh, oracle and um, Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, which oh, is oh yeah, which is definitely a um, yes. <laughs> yeah, an ancient example of someone thrashing against the forces of the universe and not being able to escape his fate. Yeah, I mean, Oedipus is a fun play, but it's also depressing as fuck. However, it's also implied that Lola seems to know about the other timelines, because in the first one, when she's robbing the supermarket with Manny, he needs to tell her to take the safety off. She doesn't know how to use the gun. When she's robbing the bank in the second vignette, she can latch the safety off all on her own. I kind of like, I like the ambiguity there. It's cool. Um, like, oh, one thing I, like I said, I like, you know, time loop stories. There's also the really good uh, Netflix uh, series, Russian Doll, about a woman who keeps dying and then waking up during her 36th birthday party. And she remembers all of the possible, the previous loop. So it allows her like test some theories, knowing that she's still going to, you know. Not to die. mention uh, Groundhog Day and Happy Death Day. Yeah, Happy Death Day. Also the horror movie Triangle. Not, it's not the same, but it does play around with the idea about what happens when you realize you're stuck in a time loop. Uh, yeah, another character that some people have argued is aware of the time loop is the security guard. Oh, yeah, him for sure. Because, yeah, in the first one, he's fine. In the second one, he's flustered. and the third one, he's having a heart attack. Yeah, you know what? I feel like I would probably have a heart attack, too, if I realized I was in a weird time loop. <laughs> yeah, the security guard is the person that Lola is helping on the ambulance, by the way. And in the third one, when Lola gets at the bank, he looks at her and says, you've arrived at last, and stares at her very meaningfully. Yeah. Lola gives lots of people stare downs. She's good at it. When I saw it there, I was like, yeah, that guard knows. He knows he's in the time loop. <laughs> yeah, I definitely gotta watch it again now that I've seen, you know, all the variables. <laughs> yeah, the third one is the one where it works out the best for just about everybody, except for the hobo. And also yeah. the, uh, the the mother with a baby carriage. She wins the lottery in the second one. She just becomes a born-again Christian in the third one. Well, I guess it's, it's okay. Better than, like, losing your kids and probably getting arrested for being a baby napper. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was the first one. <laughs> All right, well, the film was received very well. Uh, it got critical praise across the board. Its budget was uh, $1.75 million. It made uh, $22.9 million. Damn, that's yeah. a good return on investment. That is a healthy profit. It got nominated for 41 awards and won 26 of them. Damn. Yeah, in addition to that MTV award for the random pop single, it uh, won the Audience Award at Sundance, and it won the BAFTA for a foreign language film. Those are the two most prestigious. It did get submitted to the Oscars for the uh, foreign film for Germany, but it did not even get nominated that time. The film has had some uh, long-term ripples. Bon Jovi's music video for It's My Life is apparently an adaptation of it. I've never watched it all the way through because I don't like Bon Jovi. <laughs> also, uh, Yellow Card's Ocean Avenue is apparently a nod to Run, Lola, Run. All right, let's well, listen to that song again, knowing that. Run, Lola, Run was parodied by The Simpsons in... Of course it was. Yeah, uh, an episode called Trilogy of Error, the uh, Lisa segment. She is running like Lola to hard techno beats. She's trying to save Bart or Milhouse. <laughs> I forget the exact context. I saw the episode once when it was new, and I haven't seen it since. I think she was running to the school for some reason. The movie is also referenced in a random episode of Phineas and Ferb called Run Candace Run. Uh, Phineas and Ferb was the best show to watch when I was babysitting these kids in high school. I'd be like, oh yeah, Phineas and Ferb time. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's also referenced in the, the Legend of Zelda uh, Majora's Mask. Or Majora's Mask. I, I'm not sure. Majora's Mask. Uh, yeah, the game apparently takes place in a three-day cycle, which was the, the game developers based it upon Run, Lola, Run. Yeah, the first episode of J.J. Uh, Abrams' uh, Alias is also a nod to Run, Lola, Run. Uh, that why she has the pink wig on? Yeah, that's why Jennifer Garner has a pink wig on. Yay! <laughs> the legacy of the film is fairly enduring. Potenta became a, um, yeah, she crossed over into some Hollywood success. She kept making German films, but right after Run, Lola, Run, she was in Blow. Uh, she's in the first two Bourne movies. She's in a couple of episodes of American Horror Story. Uh, the most recent thing that... Uh, us ugly Americans might have seen her in is The Conjuring 2. Tickfer's uh, career has also had been long-lasting. Uh, I looked at his IMDb. It's a lot of German movies. The most well-known is one called Perfume, apparently, which I've never seen. However, um, he hooked up with the, yeah he hooked up with the Wachowskis because, of course, the Wachowskis are friends with this guy. Yeah, and honestly, it doesn't surprise me because watching the beats, the camera work, I was like, did the Wachowskis watch this? <laughs> and also, you know, the second fra uh, Matrix movie where they just stop the action for. 20 minutes so that French dude can talk about causality. Yeah, that scene. That, that's usually what I, I mean. I, don't get me wrong. I love The Matrix. Well, the first two movies and The Animatrix. But yet that's usually the scene where I get up and go to the bathroom <laughs> watching it. I don't... I just fuck off, Miro Vinjin. He's so annoying. I mean... Yeah, Run, Lola, Run manages to work causality into its narrative a lot more seamlessly than The Matrix Reloaded does. Yeah, I mean, at least I get to stare at the ethereal beauty of Monica Bellucci. <laughs> She is gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tickfer uh, co-directed Cloud Atlas with the Wachowskis, which I was going to ask you about what you thought about Cloud Atlas, because I haven't seen it, but apparently you haven't either. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, as much as I love The Matrix, I have cycle seen it. The Speed Racer, I really haven't seen a lot of the Wachowskis' filmography. I mean, okay, I'm really excited to see what's up with The Matrix 4, and I really do want to watch Sense8, even though I think it's more Lana than Lily these days. So I've heard Cloud Atlas is interesting and very ambitious and points for that, but it doesn't quite come together. Aside from the people who are just willing to cut it like way more slack than the others, but I once again haven't seen it, so I can't say for sure. Yeah, I haven't even seen V for Vendetta either. <laughs> I think they just produced that one, but that's another episode. Yeah, anyway. Well, that was me blowing through my notes. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to go into? Oh, I don't know. I just, you know, I talked about my, my appreciation for time loop movies, and I feel like this one, you know, kind of plays it differently, where there's only three loops. Why? There's, well, there's like at least ten, I think, in Russian Doll. And in Triangle, the horrors, when you realize that the loop that the main character is stuck in has happened hundreds and hundreds of times. And I've never seen Groundhog Day, so. I mean, I'm not, I have, but I was a kid, and I only remember the ending, and that's it. <laughs> well, not to talk too much about another movie on uh, a Run Lola Run podcast, but I read this piece where a bunch of MIT nerds decided to uh, calculate how many different timelines Bill Murray's character had to go through in Groundhog Day in order to do everything he did over the course of the film. It's like 10,000 years. Yeah, it? yeah, it's longer than recorded human history. You know, that's why I think the idea of having to do something over and over again and then just having it either being reset knowingly or not, like, you know, Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill, that is my idea of hell. <laughs> 
Yeah, especially if you're aware of it, which the security guard is, and he didn't, he, he, he had a rougher treatment than a lot of the other people. Yeah, well, at least he gets to survive because Lola touches his hand and she has the power. Uh, yeah, just before we get to the uh, three passerbys and you see shots of what happens to them after they they bump into Lola, mm-hmm. you uh, you hear this big like camera loading thing and a lot of shots. And the very last scene where Manny asks Lola what's in the bag, you you, you hear that wind up and that it ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do you think that means? Does, does that mean that Lola's future is unwritten? That she is once again the captain of her own fate? Or is she now an egoless puppet of the ongoing universal stream that we can barely understand? Uh, you know what? I'm going to say it's already a cop-out, but I like the ambiguity. I like that you get to decide what you think is going to happen to Lola. I feel like, you know, this is the end of the time loop as it is right now. You know, other things with the time loop, it is explained. Um, I'm not going to spoil the ending for Russian Doll, but the reason why there's a time loop makes perfect sense. And as in Triangle, it's left ambiguous, but... It's still strongly implied exactly what the time loop is. Yeah, at the beginning of the film, there's a T.S. Eliot quote, which is, At the end of our exploring, we shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started. And we know the place for the first time. I think that's a roundabout way in T.S. Eliot's coke-addled modernist fashion to imply that we ask a bunch of questions, we get answers, and that just leads to more questions, and we will never figure things out. That's the fun of it. I suppose so. And the security guard says the only thing for sure is that soccer lasts for 90 minutes. <laughs> Everything else is just theory. Yeah, it's kind of like, what are the guarantees in life, death and taxes? Yeah, I think that's Ben Franklin, or at least it's attributed to him. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like something he'd say. That man was hilarious. Well, if that's it, that is it. Uh, yeah. Thanks for joining us for yet another episode. We'll Woo! join us for, um, I mean, we, we've been talking about a lot of heavy shit lately. I think we should do something dumb and fun next time. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Should we do blood sport? <laughs> I mean, we have, we, have, we can talk a lot about blood sport. Well, you mentioned blood sport. So, yeah, yeah. Let's do blood sport yeah, next time. Yeah, blood sport. Yeah. <laughs> join us next time for split kicks and punching in the nads. and Yeah, and oh, positive masculinity. Yeah, and less discussions about causality. Yeah, Kung Fu, Jean-Claude Van Damme. The Kimute, I gotta say it wrong. <laughs> Kumite. Kumite.